0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Backstage With, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes with your favorite actors and creatives in the world of musical theater. Hello, I'm Mikey Worrell. Today we're going backstage with Stephen Schwartz. He is the Oscar, Grammy, Golden Globe and honorary Tony Award winning composer and lyricist. Over the course of his nearly 50 year career, Stephen's written musicals like Wicked, Godspell, Pippin, The Baker's Wife, and London's newest musical, The Prince of Egypt, which is based on the 1998 DreamWorks animated film. Stephen also wrote the lyrics for the Disney films Pocahontas, The Hunchback of Notre Dame and Enchanted, on which he collaborated with the composer Alan Menken. We had a chat in one of the dressing rooms at the Dominion Theatre in the West End, where the Prince of Egypt had its opening night last night. It's hard to express to you what this interview meant to me. I grew up watching and listening to Pocahontas and The Hunchback of Notre Dame like I'm sure many of you did too, and I can still remember the first time I ever listened to Wicked when I was walking home from school at the age of 15. So join me as we go backstage with Stephen Schwartz. Stephen Schwartz, hello. Hey, Mike, and good to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time today. We're here at the Dominion Theatre where Prince of Egypt is in previews. Opening night is nearly upon us. It is indeed. Uh, Opening night is almost here. I have a lot to ask you about the show. Okay. But I'd like to start by asking you about when you were writing the film because this was the project that you walked away from Disney to make and you lost Mulan to to do this. How hard was that decision?
1: Well, when I said that I would do Prince of Egypt, I didn't know I was going to get fired by Disney from Mulan because I got caught in the middle of intra-studio politics. That being said, first of all, I loved working with Jeffrey Katzenberg, first at Disney, and then subsequently when he founded DreamWorks. Steven Spielberg, it's hard to say no to anything that has that name attached to it. But I also loved the idea of the story and I felt it was a good story for me to uh, be one of the people who was telling it. The idea of taking, I like to take big familiar stories and characters and then spin them so that you look at it from a completely different point of view and that the humanity of the people being caught up in these events that you've kind of always thought as having cardboard characters in them speaks to audiences in in a different way than if you're just seeing a show about, you know, Mikey and Steve.
0: When they first told you the title was The Ten Commandments, before you heard the words The Prince of Egypt, did you go, oh, no? Well, frankly, yes.
1: My first meeting with DreamWorks when they told me that they wanted me to write the songs for their first animated feature, which of course was an extremely exciting prospect. And then they said, well, we're thinking of doing the Ten Commandments. I did have a moment where my heart just sank because I thought, really, they're going to make like a Cecil B. DeMille movie and stick some songs in it. And then Steven Spielberg said, well, actually, we think we're going to call it The Prince of Egypt and we see it as a brother's story. And immediately I thought, oh, I see. Um, that's, that's exactly the kind
0: of thing that I like to do. Well, here we are 21 years later in London and it's on the stage. Did you foresee it having this kind of life?
1: Of course, when we did the movie, we were just doing a movie. And in those days, animated features didn't become stage shows. So we never thought of it beyond trying to do a, a movie. But then what started to happen over the years was that DreamWorks kept getting inquiries from theatres around, actually around the world saying, could we do a stage version of Prince of Egypt? Does one exist? And so... Finally, a few years back, they thought, well, instead of having people pirate this and do their own versions, maybe we should see if we can put together um, a stage version and 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 that 's how it started and Then, when they called uh, me to work on a stage version, and Philip Lazebnik, who had been the writer of the original film, it was very exciting to us to say, "Well, now, hold on a minute if if we 're going to do this let 's actually rethink this for this medium." How do we want to tell the story on stage? We have more time. The characters can be more three-dimensional. On the other hand, we have to figure out how do you put some of these spectacular effects that you can do literally on film? Obviously, you can't have a river that turns to blood and waters that part on the stage, and you can't actually have a real chariot
0: race. How do you put
1: that on the stage? That became exciting to try to figure
0: out. And you can't bring down these hundred feet tall pillars, can you? Like they did in the uh, the animated version. Yeah. Um, when it came to revisiting the film to turn it into a musical, what did you put in that you couldn't fit into the film?
1: I think there's a lot that's in the uh, stage version that's not in the film. First of all, as I say, I think we were able to make the characters more three-dimensional. I mean, it's literally three-dimensional. Instead of 2D animation, you have live actors. Um, there's, a, there's a whole character and relationship that is in the show that doesn't exist in the film. There are 10 songs um, used in a variety of ways, including you know mashups with other songs from the film. There's a lot of new music. There are some new incidents, but certainly the familiar incidents are looked at in a different way. So there's a lot that's different from the the movie. On the other hand, I feel, and we've had this experience in previews, I might as well be honest, that people who come to see the show who are fans of the movie are not disappointed and don't feel, oh, they've changed it all too much. I'm hoping, and that seems to be the impression we're getting from what we're hearing, that they feel um, the story has been
0: enhanced. I've been reading about your research trip to Egypt and how you wanted to have some of the lyrics in Hebrew to give them a bit more depth than having them feel like they're just in a musical. Have those made the transition into the stage show?
1: Not only have the Hebrew lyrics that were in the film, which are in When You Believe, made the transition into the stage show, but there are actually a few more in in some places that didn't exist before. I guess there was there's also Hebrew and Deliver Us, but there are a couple of other spots now where Hebrew is used, but presumably the audience figures out what
0: they're saying. Deliver Us is obviously the opening, this huge number. That was the first song you wrote for the film, is that right?
1: Yeah, the, f- the very first song written for Prince of Egypt was Deliver Us. I don't usually start with the opening, but for some reason that, felt really clear to me what it should be. And the song actually existed for about a year before anything else happened because I wrote it very early in the process. And then Jeffrey and Steven really liked it. And they kind of used it to gather forces, you know, animators and other people interested in in working on the movie.
0: We're still in previews for the next few days. Have you been making lots of changes or have you got to a point now where you're going, we're happy with this. This is how it can, can live on.
1: No, you're never entirely happy. And of course, we've been making changes. Um, One learns a lot from each audience, and you, you feel what's working consistently, and where you're not quite communicating what you're trying to communicate. Obviously, we talk to people who come see the show and, you know, ask them, what didn't you like? What did you understand? Was there any place the story was unclear? Was there any place you were bored? And things like that. And and we listen to what people say. And you get a feel, I mean, obviously, we're not going to do every single thing that every single person suggests. But you start to get a feeling for where you're successfully telling your story and where you still could do it better. And then you try to, make it as perfect as you can until you run out of time, which we're about to do. But we made changes yesterday. We're making changes today. And, um, you know, we'll continue to do so for a little while until we have to freeze the show.
0: How has this preview process gone in comparison to some of your other shows that you've done before?
1: The nice thing about this preview process has been that it has been pretty calm. Nobody's gotten panicky. There haven't been screaming fits. No one's broke down in tears, which is what happens a lot of times on a show that has so much attention on it. Everybody came in knowing that the show that we did at first preview was not going to be the show, um, that, we were presenting for the press and then going to run and everybody came in prepared to do the work. And it's been, there's, it's been a lot of work. I mean, I won't kill you. We're all exhausted. And, but, but I think it's been a really positive and collaborative process.
0: So far, it's still early days, but is there a part of the show at the moment that really stands out for you as, as a favorite bit?
1: I have a few favourite bits in the show. I'm not going to tell you what they are because I don't want to spoil them because they involve some surprises. But there are a couple of moments that I just love seeing every night and I'm still getting thrilled by them. So I don't know if that will wear off. But right now, after however many it's been, 13 previews, those places are still pretty thrilling to me.
0: There is an enormous team behind this show on stage and off. But how does it feel for you as the person who wrote this music and these songs to hear so many people on stage singing your music?
1: It's so thrilling for me as a composer. First of all, we have a cast of really good singers and an ensemble, many of whom are, of course, covers for uh, the roles and I have no doubt we'll be playing them at some points who are fantastic singers so they make an amazing sound and I also think we have an extraordinary orchestra which includes some ethnic instruments of the region are orchestrator August Eric Simone, who among other um, shows did come from away, is extremely good at sort of taking a culture and finding instrumentation that is redolent of that. And so that's been very exciting too. It's it's more, the, the score sounds more ethnic, if you will, and more
0: of the place than I think the original did. I read that your mantra, as it as it were, is uh, in lieu of inspiration, do research. When it, you said ten new songs for for this production, when you were revisiting that and starting to work on them, did you go back to Egypt? What did what was your process?
1: In in writing the ten new songs, I did not physically go back to Egypt. However, I did listen to a lot of the research that I had done originally. I had a lot of recordings of hebraic music, arabic music, egyptian pop, which is which I liked very much how the the, the way the percussion works in it and even what was said to be Egyptian court music, though, how they know that that was the case, I don't know. But um, yeah, I I returned to that so that the whole score would feel of a piece and it wouldn't suddenly seem like, oh, well, there were these movie songs and then there are these new songs and they don't really fit together. my My hope is that it all just sounds like a score.
0: You have such a vast body of work from Godspell, Pippin, Working, Rags, The Baker's Wife, through to your 90s Disney's hits. I have to tell you, as a seven-year-old, I was obsessed with Pocahontas. I had the birthday cake. There's a picture of me on holiday (laughs) in a T-shirt with John Smith down the front. So your music has definitely been there through my entire life. Thank you, Mikey. When it came to the research trip for Pocahontas... Was that an eye opener in terms of the Native American aspects of the story? Because I, I read that that trip really changed what the film came to be.
1: Yeah. When we were researching Pocahontas, I read a lot of Native American poetry and did read a lot of books about, you know, the last Algonquian. And then we took a trip to Jamestown where I found a, a tape in a little store which was Songs of the Jamestown Colony. So yeah, a lot of the research helped to feed into trying to get an authenticity of it. I was pretty knowledgeable about the Native American experience beforehand, which is one of the reasons I wanted to do the film. You know, the way we treated the indigenous population in America is not something we can be very proud of. So, And that was something I was very aware of before.
0: With Pocahontas, did you realise in writing Colours of the Wind what that song was was going to be and the life that it would have? Colours
1: of the Wind was the very first song that I wrote for Disney and the very first song that Alan Menken and I wrote together. And I based a lot of the lyrics on research that I had done, and most uh, especially uh, a very impassioned letter that Chief Seattle of the Northern Tribes had written to Congress when they were ruining water and cutting down trees and taking away their land. And I was not sure, nor was Alan, when we wrote the song that Disney would go for it, frankly, because it, it sort of treated more adult themes than I think Disney had done heretofore. Um, so we were very pleasantly surprised when they were so
0: enthusiastic about it. Is it true that when you wrote that, you you thought that that was going to be it and that you weren't going to get to carry on on the project?
1: Yeah, we. I just thought, like, <laughs> I, I thought when Disney heard Colors of the Wind, they would just feel like, oh... We we have the wrong guy here. We we need to get a different lyricist who's going to do more Disney esque kind of things. But um, Disney in those days was very adventurous. It was one of the reasons when Jeffrey Katzenberg called me to come to DreamWorks and do Prince of Egypt, I went because I, Jeffrey I felt was really brave, took risks, and and pushed the envelope. And
0: you know that was a different time at Disney. You were the lyricist on Pocahontas and and Hunchback of Notre Dame alongside the composer, Alan Menken. But the majority of your work has been as composer-lyricist. Do you find it harder to be half of the team than having the autonomy of doing both? Um, I don't find it harder
1: to be just, if you will, the lyricist, but it is different. Uh, In in some ways, it's easier, of course, because I don't have to prepare all that music, and um, so it saves me a lot of labour And then in other ways, it's there's the challenge of internalizing someone else's music till it feels like it's it's my own or it feels like, well, it's just the music uh, and and then putting words on that that are appropriate for for that music. I'm a big fan of Alan's. Alan and I are friends. We're good friends. We were friends before we started being collaborators. So that's made it easy as well, that we have a very good personal relationship.
0: I know you said before that when you were doing Hunchback, writing for Frollo was the favorite character you've ever written for. Does that still stand? It it does. Frollo is still my favorite because I've never
1: gotten to write that kind of a warped and twisted villain Again, um, I hope to get another opportunity to do that. Uh, you know, I understood why actors like to play villains, because it's so much fun to go to this dark place and see the world through those eyes and know that you can safely retreat from it. But just to be there for a while is, is really fun and kind of creepy. And it's like, it's like being in your own horror movie, if you know what I mean, but knowing that no one's actually going to cut your throat. Um, who is the hardest character you've ever written? Um, that's a good question. Try, I'm trying to think. I, I don't know that I can think of a character that has been ultimately, I mean, every all characters are hard to write in some ways, but some come more readily than others. Um, for instance, when I was working on Wicked, I just knew who Elphaba was from the beginning. I think I have a lot of that inside me. Glinda, I don't think I would have written as successfully if it hadn't been for Winnie Holtzman, the book writer. Winnie really knew who Glinda was. And I was able to f- kind of find Glinda in what Winnie had written. So Glinda at, at, at the outset was a little bit more challenging for me. But ultimately, I, I have to find each character that I'm writing, I have to find that in me. Just like if you're an actor and you're playing someone, you have to be the character. And so you have to find where in you is that character. And and I feel like I'm usually able to do
0: that, sometimes more readily than others. Staying on Wicked, at what point did you realise that you had written the musical, not just of a decade, but that defined a whole generation?
1: I, I think the sort of success of Wicked becoming a phenomenon was obviously well after the show was open and playing. And then we just started to see what was happening, not just in terms of that audience every night, but the, um, you know, when we opened in the West End, when we did the tour, we realized that that somehow completely, no credit to ourselves, we had tapped into a moment in the zeitgeist where that particular story was, was speaking to a a world that wanted to hear it. Um, So I would say we were about two years into the run of wicked where we realized that this was not just a, a
0: success, but had become a kind of cultural phenomenon. Is it true that defying gravity is, is the song that you wrote and it's pretty much stayed the same while all the other ones were changing around it? Um, Defying Gravity changed
1: um, because it's not just the song, but it's a whole musical scene. So I think the song Defying Gravity itself is pretty much the way I wrote it. Though, frankly, when we taught it to Adina, some of the the melodic way it was um, being sung changed because she wanted to sing higher longer than I thought was going to be physically possible eight times a week. But yeah, the the surrounding scene changed. The song that changed least from the moment I wrote it to the to what's on the stage now is popular. Basically, it's exactly what I wrote.
0: Oh, that's interesting. With with Defying Gravity, the the staging has become so iconic, and it, it's it really is just such a, an incredible moment, especially for young people who are seeing it for the first time. Did you have that in your head what it was going to look like when you were writing it?
1: I knew, and I hope by now this isn't a spoiler, I knew that the end of the first act of Wicked was going to be that the witch was going to fly for the first time. That's all we had. And that in this song, obviously, hence the title Defying Gravity, at the end of the song... She was going to get on that broom and fly. It was our director, Joe Mantello, who came up with the brilliant stage device. And then I also feel that Kenny Posner's lighting for that song is the best lighting I've ever seen in the theater. And it's and Susan Hilferty designed a brilliant costume. So kind of that's the fun thing about musical theater. It's It's the collaboration. And when all departments are just firing full cylinder, then you can have a theatrical moment like the end of the first act of Wicked. I think we have a couple of those in, in Prince of Egypt, too. But again, it's collaborative. It's not just the song that I wrote functioning, but the performance of the song, the way it's staged, the way it's designed, absolutely the way it's lit, um, that, that all contributes to a thrilling theatrical moment.
0: When people audition for the show, uh, I know here in London, they're, they're filmed and a tape is sent to you and the, the creative team for approval. When you get that tape, what is it you're looking for in, a, in an Elphaba, and a Glinda? And is there anything that turns you off?
1: Um, I'm a
0: big typecaster
1: in that I believe that every actor, every performer has a certain essence that he or she brings into the room. And that doesn't mean that they can't play a variety of roles, but I feel if they don't have certain elements, no matter how talented they are, they can't actually do the specific role. So obviously with Alphaba, let's, let's use Alphaba Elph- use as an example. First of all, technically they have to be able to sing it and they have to be a good enough actress to perform it. And they have to have a look that feels like it could be alphabet, though we've had all sorts of different looking, all shapes, sizes, colors, what you name it, of alphabos. But more than anything, there's an inner vulnerability about alphabet. There's like, I, I say like she has a hole in her heart. And I've seen actresses who absolutely can do the role technically come in, but they just don't have that. And consequently, they really can't embody that role, so it's so it's sort of like what is the essence of the role? What is the essence of this particular actor? Is that a good fit?
0: Here in London, we were very lucky to have Louise Dearman, who became the very first actress to play both Elphaba and Glinda in the world. Can you ever see that happening again? Playing both Elphaba and Glinda is is tough. Louise happened to have. The element
1: uh, that you need for Alphaba, but also the sort of she was able to switch into that kind of slightly clueless confidence that that Glinda has to start with, but that's a rare combination i can't I wouldn't say it would never happen, but it and I have seen people who were alphabas that I thought, oh she could maybe be a Glinda and vice versa but but it's pretty rare because, as I say, I think there's a certain essence that each of the roles has and, um, and you have to have that to
0: perform it successfully. Just going back to Hunchback, something I forgot to mention, the, the film became a musical and had a run in New Jersey at the Paper Mill Playhouse. Will we ever see that production in London? I don't know if the stage version of Hunchback of
1: Notre Dame, which, by the way, is one of my favorite things that I've ever done. I think it's just fantastic. And it has played extremely successfully in other countries. In Germany, it ran for a long time. It's still running in Japan. It's been performed in Scandinavia. But it is very, very dark. And I think Disney as a corporation has a question about whether it is is part of their brand, to be perfectly honest. I think Disney feels that if you know something is a Disney product, you can bring your six-year-old. You should not be bringing a six-year-old to the stage version of Hunchback of Notre Dame. It is dark and it is adult. And I think, you know, younger than 10, and and you'd have to be a pretty mature 10, should not be coming to see that show because it's just going to be too upsetting. And I'm not sure that Disney feels that they can do that. So it's a corporate decision, frankly, not an artistic decision.
0: Of course, of course. I know in the past um, there was a time when you quit the business when some of your Broadway shows didn't go down the way you wanted yes, them. Yes, quit twice. <laughs> and then you came to London and tried London and then that didn't necessarily go to plan but your work seems to be having a real renaissance here. We've had working recently, we've had rags recently, Pippin's had a run in Manchester and in London. Do you feel like you're do you feel vindicated in the success that you're having um, in London now?
1: Well, I, I wouldn't say that I feel vindicated, but I feel as if and we'll see of course what happens with Prince of Egypt, but I feel as if I have a certain sensibility. And some people respond to that and some people don't. Some Critics will never like what I do, and some do, and for whatever reason, right now, the sensibility that I bring to things seems to have found an audience in London. We'll see how long that continues. Obviously, I'm delighted about it,
0: but you just never know. Well, as we come to the end, I just want to say, on behalf of musical theatre fans all over the world, thank you, because... I know that there is an immeasurable amount of gratitude towards you for the work that you have crafted and and put into the world. So thank you. Thank you, Mikey. I appreciate your saying that. The Prince of Egypt is running at the Dominion Theatre in the West End, where it's just extended and tickets are now available for performances until the 31st of October. Next time on the podcast, we're going backstage with Miriam Teek-Lee, the star of And Juliet in the West End. Please subscribe to hear more thoughtful interviews with the leading actors and creatives in the theatre world you can watch the interview with Stephen and find other conversations and performances on our youtube channel for now though thank you very much for listening i hope you enjoyed the show